0: And sometimes God will say to one person, others can, but you cannot. And that's why when a particular issue is not clearly spelled out in Scripture, we don't necessarily impose a restriction that God has put on our life on someone else unless there is a very clear principle to it.
1: Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogey. Senior Pastor at Community Bible Church of Buford, South Carolina. We're in Romans chapter 14 where the Apostle Paul tried to cover how we're to handle questions of behavior that are not specifically addressed in the Bible. But in order to rightly apply scriptural principles, it takes some study and discernment on our part, and particularly on the part of pastors who are to rightly divide the Word of God. As Dr. Brogy picks up today, however, we see there are some pastors who are what the Bible calls a stumbling block.
0: So number one, first, we're to judge unrepentant church members. Secondly, the Bible also tells us that we are to judge false teachers and false doctrine. And again, more and more, in evangelicalism, people don't want to preach the Word of God. They don't want to sound too harsh or too divisive. Years ago, I went to a conference in a stadium in Columbia, South Carolina, and the MC stood up and he said, doctrine only divides. We don't want to be divisive. And so Christians today are saying, let's just lay aside our doctrinal differences, unite with one another and love one another and don't be dogmatic. There are some things that God is very dogmatic on and we should be as well. Yes, doctrine does divide. It divides truth from error. And most often today to be politically correct is to be biblically corrupt. When we come to chapter 16, Paul will say in the 17th verse, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. In 1 John 4, the apostles said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Jesus warned in the Sermon on the Mount, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In his second letter to the church at Thessalonica, he said, Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good in the realm of doctrine is the context. From these passages, the Bible is crystal clear that we are to discern truth from error, true teachers from false teachers. And the only way, in the words of Paul here in our text, that we can hold on to that which is good is to know what the scripture says and to be grounded in the scriptures. And today, if you take some position against a false teacher, they'll tell you you're either A, jealous of his ministry or being judgmental. This week, the president of the South Carolina Baptist Convention called Perry Noble, the pastor of the New Spring Church, the largest church in the state of South Carolina, on the mat. He condemned Perry Noble for his pulpit profanity, for his sloppy exegesis and preaching, for his regular use not just of non-Christian music, but anti-Christian music like Highway to Hell, In his denial of the infallible, inerrant, timeless Word of God by rewriting the Ten Commandments, and he apologized initially and came back last week and said, I'm making no apology. And now people are calling President Kelly judgmental for calling a church out on the mat. We're to judge Aaron Brothers. The Bible teaches we are to judge false teaching, but the scripture also says, as we studied Wednesday night, we're to judge ourselves. When we come to the Lord's table, Paul said, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks... Uh, judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly for this reason because you did not judge yourself rightly for this reason many of you are weak some are sick and some have died sooner than God wanted you to you're asleep but he said if we judged ourselves rightly we would not be judged so we come to the Lord's table. We are to judge sin in our life when we hold the very elements that represent the fact that we've been redeemed with precious blood that were not our own. You do not take in those elements symbolic of what Jesus did, harboring sin in your heart. And I suppose in the broadest sense, 1 Corinthians 2.15 says, he who is spiritual judges all things. And that really covers the gambit. So let's put this text in its context. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. It needs to be understood in the context. Again, he's not talking about in this context, judging unrepentant sin. He's not talking in this context of judging doctrinal error. In this context, he's talking about issues that are not spelled out in Scripture. He's saying, in essence, stop being critical and judgmental towards one another in these gray matters. Let's read the verse again. Therefore, let us not judge, the Greek word there is kreno one another, anymore, but rather determine or kreno this. It's a play on words in the original, as you can see on the slide. It's the same Greek word used twice in the text. A little awkward if you translate it literally, a little wooden, but literally it says, let us not judge one another anymore, but be careful to judge this. In fact, that's the way the King James puts it. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather. He's playing off the nuance of the word. In essence, he's saying, don't judge one another, but rather judge yourself. Take a very honest and hard look at yourself. Especially as it relates to these gray areas. You see, we tend to be harder on others than we are on ourselves. We say, well, he's grouchy. But when it comes to us, well, I'm just tired. See, that's our tendency. And Paul wants us to judge ourselves in these gray areas and in a particular way. Notice, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine or judge this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Please notice he uses two different words to denote two different actions. First, he says not to put an obstacle in a brother's way. And then he says not to put a stumbling block in a brother's way. Now let's consider the first word, obstacle. It's a Greek word that means to bump or to trip up. It can refer to an occasional tripping up of something. Something that's unintentional, that's unplanned. When my grandkids were here, I got up during the night and I stepped on a toy and my foot, oh, that hurt. They didn't leave it there to hurt my foot. It was unintentional. That's the thought behind the first word, obstacle. The second word translated here, stumbling block, speaks of a more serious offense. It's the Greek word scandalion. Sk- uh, we get our word directly in English, scandal. And so while an obstacle is an innocent hindrance of sort that we need to judge so we don't commit it, a stumbling block is more serious. It's an intentional injury. In fact, the word that is used here was used for the trigger on a trap. If you put a piece of cheese in a mouse trap and the mouse is caught, the trigger is the cheese that sprang the trap. And one is worse than the other. It's not talking about just a stubbing of a toe here. He's talking here of an intentional tripping up of a brother, an intentional hurt. In either case, he's saying, don't innocently hinder your brother's faith. And don't intentionally hinder your brother's faith. And so he's reminding us of the kind of judging that we are to do. Let me see if I can illustrate. A missionary friend serves in a foreign country that is largely Roman Catholic. And in that particular country, once a year at Christmas time, people will bring their manger pieces, their figurines to the church, To have the priest bless them and throw holy water on them. How many of you had a manger? I did last year. How many of you had a manger scene? Yeah, hundreds of you. Well, they do that in this country, but they do not put their manger scene out in their businesses or in their homes until the priest blesses them and puts holy water and sometimes they wait in line for hours and in some churches they have to pay to have it done but once it is done they lay them out and they think that blessing comes upon their home and they even pray idolatry idolatrously to the figurines and so this one brother came into his house who had been saved out of that background and Christians when they find the Lord they they find that action repulsive and they came into this missionary's house and they saw his figurines and they said, how could you? How could you do that? How could you have this manger seen Now, Because he had been saved out of that kind of background where there was idolatry associated with the putting out of a manger. Now, he wasn't idolatrous in the least bit. He didn't even know it was an offense. But he understood that it could be an unintentional obstacle in that country if he is going to win people to Jesus Christ. Now, if he thought to himself, well, look, that's just their problem. That's just their weakness. That's just their superstition. I'm not going to pray to some figurine and I'm going to put it out and exercise my freedom in Christ. Then it becomes an intentional stumbling block and it shows great insensitivity. I'll give you another example. You know, some Christians think it's a sin to wear, to wear makeup. I think it's a sin for some women not to wear makeup. <laughs> uh, but for instance, in one particular country I was in, this sister who was a very popular singer came to America And people were very excited that she was coming back to the Ukraine to sing in this church. And she was kind of a national star amongst evangelicals. And she got up in the pulpit that day. She came out of the back room and she looked like Jezebel. And in essence, she was saying to her Ukrainian brothers and sisters, I don't care what you think. I am free in Christ to wear makeup. And in this particular church, that was a real stumbling block. And God says that sometimes we are to yield our freedom for the cause of Christ. Now we're going to study when we come to the 15th chapter, we need to help weaker brothers become strong. And we're going to understand the principles on how to do that. I'll give you another example. In some churches in the South, they would say it's a sin for a woman to wear slacks. And there's some churches still in our own town that teach that. And the verse they often use is Deuteronomy 22 and verse 5. Let me read it to you. Moses wrote, A woman shall not wear man, a man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. Forever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. And so if a woman showed up in slacks, they would rail her to death. But understand the context of the verse is dealing with cross-dressing, with transsexual and homosexual and lesbian behavior. It has nothing to do with pants. In fact, when the Bible was written, even after the New Testament was completed, pants hadn't even been invented. Actually, there's another principle that God gives when it comes to a woman's dress. For instance, Paul says to Timothy, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. Now, in many instances, a, a woman's slacks might be more modest than a woman's dress that's too high or too low or too tight. And the opposite could be true of a woman's slacks that look painted on. Please understand, there are, there are some young Christians who come into our church who've never even thought about this. They come out of the pagan culture in which we live, where most of the dress is geared towards women to be seductive. And they come and they don't really think any different, but as they grow in Christ, they learn, well, it needs to be modest and discreet. Then there are some sisters who are not doing unintentionally putting an obstacle in a brother's way. Some are intentionally trying to get men to look at them. Maybe they have a very low self-esteem and they like the eyes of men, or some are trying to get men to lust at them and even to seduce some of those people. They are putting a stumbling block in a brother's way. So you don't give people a rule, don't wear slacks. You give people the principle not to be a stumbling block. So number one, I am not to be a stumbling block. Number two, I am not to transgress my conscience. Please notice now verse 14, if you will. I know am, and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Now, if you were back here a few weeks in December when we dealt with the very first section of this chapter, we dealt with this issue of meats in the first century. And it fell under two realms, both contaminated and uncontaminated meat and clean and unclean meats. He's dealing with the latter in this chapter. Chapters like 1 Corinthians 8 deals with contaminated and uncontaminated meat. What was that about? Well, in the first century... There are pagan temples in virtually every town, and when you went to worship your pagan god, you would bring an animal in sacrifice. And if you were a pious worshiper, you didn't bring some old scraggly thing, you brought your best. And a portion of the animal would be offered to the false god, and the majority of the animal would be sold in the meat market behind the temple. And some Christians who've been saved out of that idolatrous kind of background would say, I wouldn't touch that meat with a 10-foot pole. It had been offered to a pagan god. And other Christians would say, who are strong in their mind, they say, well, there's really no such thing as a false god. There's only one god, the one true god. And there's nothing wrong with the meat. In fact, it's in such abundance. It's the cheapest place to buy it. And it's the best meat in town. And I'll have more money as a good steward to invest in missions, so I'm going to go to pagan's meat market. And that was one of the issues they faced. The other issue is the issue that's dealing with this chapter. Look back in verse 2, if you will. One person, who says, has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. So here, as in verse 14, some had freedom in their conscience, to eat anything, and others did not. Now, hopefully, you already have written out in the margin of your Bible here in the 14th chapter, next to verse 2, two Old Testament texts that I gave you if you want to study this, Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. And in those two chapters of Scripture, God deals with the issue of clean and unclean meats under the Mosaic Law. So, for instance, certain scavenger water life that did not have both fins and scales were forbidden, like shrimp or lobster or oyster. Uh, Any animals that had a paw was considered unclean. Certain insects were considered unclean. Animals like pigs and camels and rabbits who did not chew the cud and uh, did not have a divided hoof were considered unclean. People say, well, why? why? Why did God isolate these animals? Well, our Seventh-day Adventist friends would tell us for reasons of hygiene. They would say, well, if you eat pork, you can potentially get trigonosis or clog your arteries if you eat too much, or if you eat rabbit, you can get uh, tularemia uh, and get very sick. Well, that's true. You could get those diseases, I suppose, but I don't think that's the reason for the prohibition. Why do I not think that? Because of what I read in the New Testament. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And in Acts chapter 10, in that vision that God gives to Peter, and then he applies to his reaching of Gentiles, God declares all meats clean, as Jesus does in Mark chapter 7. And so, what was the purpose? Well, in the ceremonial law, some of the ceremonial law prefigured what Christ was going to do in his life, death, and resurrection. Other aspects of the ceremonial law separated the Hebrew people apart as a distinct people. And so there were certain rules as it related to the kind of clothing they could wear, the way they cut their hair, their diet, and so forth. Why? It made them a peculiar people. Just like if you go to the Amish country today, you say, these people are different. And God used that difference as a platform to tell them about the one true God to be a light to the Gentile nations. Under the new covenant, God does not distinguish his people externally so much as he does internally. And so speaking of this coming covenant, the prophet said, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That's the blessing of the new covenant that no Old Testament saint ever knew. That's why John, whom Jesus said, no one ever born of a woman was greater than John, but he was least in the kingdom is greater than him, because John never came into the reality of the new covenant. It was not until in time and space that Jesus died and John was executed before that, until he died and he purchased our redemption and raised from the dead that he could send the promise of God, the Holy Spirit. And so, under the new covenant, God declared all meats clean. Jesus said, are you so lacking in understanding? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated. And then, parenthetically, Mark writes, thus he declared all meats clean. Now, that's the background behind the discussion here in Romans 14. So, you have this brother who's grilling pork and shrimp on a skewer. And his Jewish brother comes over, and he says, how can you? He's just offended by it. Because his whole life, he was brought up with a mindset that that was wrong, that that was sinful. And then you had issues too, where you had Gentiles who had come over to another brother's house who had bought meat at the local pagan meat market, and having been saved out of that background, he looked at him with a sense of disgust and contempt. And so Paul is answering the question, and we'll apply it to our day, how do you respond to such things? Notice what he says in verse 14, I know, am, and convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. In other words, Paul is saying if you think something is wrong, then it's wrong for you and don't do it. You never transgress your own conscience. You've heard me say it before, and I'll say it again. When in doubt, cut it out. If you think something is wrong, then don't do it. You don't have the freedom in your own conscience. Now, recognize there are some things that God will give one person freedom to do because of where they are in their spiritual maturity, and another person, they have no such freedom. And again, we're not talking about things that are plainly spelled out in Scripture, but these so-called gray areas. And there are some principles of conscience that we can apply. For instance, someone called me from another state. And he wanted counsel, and I agreed to counsel him. And I had he and his wife on the phone, and this guy had just uh, pornography on the Internet had a hold on him. And I basically said, look, You would be wise just to get off the internet. The only time you can go on the internet is if your wife or some other person who can hold you accountable is there. You just need to be off of it. He said, well, that's kind of what I was thinking. I really kind of, you know, should I get rid of my internet or not? You know, look, when in doubt, cut it out. And so you are doubting whether or not you should continue your internet service. And sometimes God causes us to doubt. I remember working with two young Christians, they were identical twins, they had just come to Christ, and they came to me to the next Bible study, and they say, I say, you guys look kind of discarded. we're down, what's wrong? Well, you know, the guys on the floor invited us to this movie, and we kind of debated whether we should go, and we went to the movie, and we we're sitting in there, and we realized we shouldn't be in this movie. Now, they didn't understand the plain principle yet of Philippians 4, 8, 9, which is a good verse that should govern the kinds of movies that you watch. It's not just an issue of rating or R or PG. It's an issue of things that are honorable and true and right and worthy of praise. But I said to those guys, look, when in doubt, cut it out. God caused you to doubt. When I first came here as the pastor of Community Bible Church, there was another person who started coming to some of our events. He was not a member, but he would attend different events. He seemed very friendly, and he would invite my two oldest boys, Jeremy and Jordan, to come and play with his boys. And I didn't really know this guy, but he kept coming. And one day after we had had a church picnic, he said, look, I was going to take my boys over to the park, and we've got an archery set, and we're going to play bow and arrow, and wondered if your boys could come. And I said, well, I I appreciate the invitation, but we really can't. I got into the car, and those guys, their hearts sunk. Dad, why can't we go? I said, guys, I I don't know. I just have a reservation in my heart for you to go. I, I have just kind of a check in my spirit. A month later, he was arrested for child molestation. Sometimes God puts a check, He just puts a a doubt in your heart as to whether or not you have freedom. And sometimes God will say to one person, others can, but you cannot. And that's why when a particular issue is not clearly spelled out in Scripture, we don't necessarily impose a restriction that God has put on our life on someone else unless there is a very clear principle to it. Now let's take the issue of smoking. It's become very popular in evangelicalism now for Christians to be encouraged to smoke a cigar or a pipe. They'll say, look, Spurgeon did it. Well, a lot of the pastors in Spurgeon Day, even without the knowledge that we have today medically on the harmfulness of of smoking cigars, they said he shouldn't do it. Maybe that's why he died at 57. I don't know. But a lot of these Christians are saying, look... Maybe I'm not really sure whether it's right or wrong, but since there's no verse in the Bible prohibiting it, why can't I smoke my cigar? Well, laying aside the clear principle that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and you shouldn't do anything to harm it, if you're not sure, when in doubt, cut it out. And until you can find a clear verse that gives you the freedom, then don't do it. You see, if it's doubtful, you should always give God the benefit of the doubt. It's like the husband who is in the back room and he's changing. He says, honey, is this shirt clean? Can I wear this? She's on the phone with her friend and she says, no, don't wear it. Put on another one. So he puts on another shirt and he comes out. How about this one? Is this one okay? Yeah, that's fine. Well, how did you know the other one wasn't clean? You didn't even come back and ah, see it. She said, if you had to ask, it was dirty. (laughs) If it's doubtful, it's dirty. If it's doubtful, just change shirts. That's the principle. And Paul's going to reiterate the principle down here in verse 22. Notice, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself on what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. So when we think about the brotherhood of believers, first, I'm not to be a stumbling block. Secondly, I'm not to transgress my conscience. Third, I learned I'm not to transgress my brother's conscience. I'm not to transgress my brother's conscience. Look now, if you will, in verse 15. For if because of food your brothers hurt, you don't say, so what? They'll get over it. Now, you're not to act that way if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer acting according to love. I have a friend who's an alcoholic, or in biblical terms, he's a drunk before he got saved. And in his conscience, he can't even go into a restaurant like the Outback or Applebee's that has a bar in it. Because it just brings back too many memories and it has too strong a grip on him. Now I can think of a thousand and one reasons why I can go into a restaurant like that. I went into Applebee's one day and I wanted one of the booths and it was packed, it was full and the closest place they could set me was on a chair about five feet from the bar and I led man to Christ there. I can think of a thousand reasons why I can go into a restaurant like that. But for him it brings too many memories and potential temptation and so we go to Cracker Barrel.
1: We ought to be careful not just to not transgress our own consciences, but also we should be intentional not to transgress our brother's conscience. To listen again to this or any of the messages in our Romans series, use the Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogi app, available for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also call and request the Brotherhood of Believers, program ROM67, on CD or DVD. Our phone number is 877-787-7478. And when you do contact us, would you consider supporting the ministry of Search the Scriptures? Your generous donation plays a vital role in providing biblical teaching and in helping to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Tomorrow we conclude our message, Brotherhood of Believers. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.